Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. I suspect that each one of us has heard that we are what we eat, but we are also what we breathe and drink. And this exposure to our environment is an issue in our development that occurs even before we are conceived. Our mothers bring to the pregnancy a lifetime of their own exposures. Joining us today is Susan Buchanan, a physician and assistant professor of occupational and environmental medicine. She is also a member of the Chicago branch of the Physicians for Social Responsibility, a group that is very involved with these issues. Dr. Buchanan, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. We are going to discuss in this interview the nature and potential problems of a number of substances and pollutants. If you are concerned about some exposure that you've had, and this is especially so for women of childbearing age, speak to your physician, read balanced information about the concerns, and basically educate yourself about what is genuine data versus what is not. There are many sources of data. One of the best is the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Physicians for Social Responsibility. You can get these links at psr.org. Okay, that being said, the issues of pollutants seem to have been lost somewhat compared to the focus now about global warming. Have we resolved the pollution issues or are we now just not discussing them adequately? We're not discussing them adequately. They are certainly still out there. Some pollution issues certainly have improved. Our air quality is better than it has been in years past. Water quality has improved, but there are still plenty of issues out there to deal with. Asthma rates, as most people know, are much higher than in the past, possibly due to, well, certainly being contributed by air pollutants. Some other more subtle neurologic developmental effects in children are on the rise certain types of cancers, infertility, sperm counts going down. There are trends being seen in some health outcomes that we think are attributable to environmental pollution. One of the oldest notions that has been around for a very long time is the notion of lead. And we tend to think that lead comes from the old lead paint that was in houses. Is that still a big problem in our society or has the lead paint problem pretty much been replaced by safer paints? The lead paint issue is still a problem for children because lead paint sticks around so long. It doesn't degrade in the soil, the lead from the paint dust. So there's still a lot of contaminated soil out there. Lead levels in children have decreased in the last two decades, but at the same time, we have been finding subtle neurologic health effects at very low doses. The issue is very definitively not over. The CDC is now planning to reduce the action level for lead from 10 micrograms per deciliter to 5 micrograms per deciliter. So many older practicing physicians will remember when the cutoff level was 40 and then it came down to 23 and then 10 in 1991 and now it's moving down to five. Many large cities still have buildings that have lead paint in the lower levels, you know, the lower layers of paint on the walls, especially around window frames when windows are open and closed. That paint can get pulverized if there's any rehabs in the building. The lead paint becomes pulverized and the dust blows onto children's toys. Because of their hand-to-mouth behaviors, they are ingesting lead. So lead is still an issue. There's still plenty of remediation going on in the older, larger cities. What effect does it have on our development? We now know that lead crosses the placenta and pregnant women with high lead levels during pregnancy give birth to children that have cord blood lead levels, so it directly crosses the placenta and those infants do have higher risk for neurodevelopmental effects. Those include loss of IQ points, there's some ADHD that is linked to lead poisoning, adolescent behavior issues linked to lead poisoning. 
happening, but also causes higher rates of miscarriage and early pregnancy loss. Should someone have their lead level tested before they become pregnant? And if they do, is there some way that they can get the lead out of their bodies? That's a great question. CDC just released new guidelines last spring on screening pregnant women. And the guidelines include risk screening questions to be used to help decide whether to screen a pregnant woman for lead. These are based on epidemiologic studies. There are few doctors, I would imagine, who are screening every pregnant woman for lead, although I've participated in research in which we did so in a higher risk population. But now the CDC has issued these guidelines giving us some advice on who to screen and who probably doesn't need screening. Those guidelines include patients born outside of the U.S. because they have been shown to have higher lead levels, maybe perhaps from cultural practices in their home countries, women that live in older homes who might have a child who's been shown to have lead levels greater than 10 micrograms per deciliter in the past. Those are the types of screening questions that are used. One of the arguments that I sometimes hear people who are doubters about this will say, well, wait a minute, if we had much higher levels years ago, 40, then the 25, and now we're looking at 5, many of us then obviously were exposed to lead and we are okay. But that seems almost glib and, and too universally presumptive that it's safe. How would we address someone who's arguing that so many people were exposed to lead and we don't see that they're having problems? Or maybe we're not looking close enough at the problems that they're having. That makes me chuckle because I joke that I could have been a PhD. Instead, I'm just an MD. The lead poisoning that I was certainly exposed to in my older home. So the average lead levels when we were growing up were somewhere in the 20s. Who knows what we might have accomplished had we not been lead exposed. So there are a couple generations, two, three generations of us who certainly have lost a few IQ points, some neurodevelopmental effects. Most public health practitioners still consider it a problem, especially with unarguable data showing that there are neurodevelopmental effects at these lower levels. When we talk about a general shift in lead levels, when you discuss a population at a population level, if you shift the IQ of the population down just a couple points, picture the bell curve of IQ distribution, shift that curve to the left, just two points, there have been estimates showing that it increases the number of children who have special needs by several thousand. At the same time, what you've done is lost many children who would have been in the gifted category. So at a population level, you are shifting the whole opportunity for great intellectual advancement. You're shifting it downwards just from losing a few IQ points at a population level. The rise in autism in our society, is there any suggestion that these pollutants during pregnancy might be an issue here? That's certainly being discussed and researched. Yes, it's true that the autism rates are going up even when considering that diagnosis is also more accurate and is being diagnosed more often. Autism is increasing. Specific chemicals are being looked at, but right now we have not found anything, any direct links between environmental exposure and autism, but these studies are just in their infancy. So I consider it still quite possible that we are going to find a link between environmental exposures and autism, especially since our neurodevelopmental testing is becoming so much more sophisticated that we are able to identify more children with problems, and the studies just in the last 10 years have been including these more sophisticated tests in relation to chemicals. So we're going to see more research like that. 
So this then can take us right over to mercury. Mercury is just in our waterways. I read a statistic that said that 43% of our waterways are contaminated with mercury. Let's talk about mercury. What is it? Where does it come from? What does it do? Mercury comes from coal-fired power plants. It comes from burning waste, waste incineration. Natural sources include forest fires and volcanoes, but the vast majority is from waste burning and coal-fired power plants. There are some industries that emit mercury into the air, and when the mercury gets into the air, it settles into the waterways, and the sediments in the waterways turn the metallic mercury particles into methylmercury, which is now organic mercury. The organic mercury accumulates in the fish, and humans are exposed by consuming the fish. Virtually all fish are contaminated with mercury on a global level because of mercury pollution worldwide, but many fish species have very low levels, which at least at this point have not been found to have health effects. The problem is for those who eat a lot of fish, for folks who eat large fish, because the larger predatory fish accumulate more mercury over their lifetime. So those who eat larger fish like swordfish and shark are getting larger mercury doses. Mercury directly crosses the placenta and actually higher levels of mercury have been found in fetal brain when compared to maternal blood. So it probably accumulates in the fetal brain and causes neurologic and other developmental abnormalities. There have been recommendations published about how much fish pregnant women should eat and how much fish a young girl of childbearing age should eat. Are those valid or are they just being overly cautious? No, those are absolutely valid. The EPA and the FDA jointly issued fish consumption guidelines that include avoidance of the four types of fish, tilefish, shark, swordfish, and king mackerel by pregnant women and women of childbearing age and young children. You mentioned young girls, but actually mercury does not accumulate in our bodies over a long period of time. Lead does, however. Lead sequesters in the bone, but mercury does not. We're talking about the risk for young children being in their current neurodevelopment, so we don't worry about young girls um, over the long term. Children, pregnant women, women of childbearing age should avoid those four types of fish altogether. They should have fish twice a week because fish has wonderful effects on visual development of the fetus as well and can prevent cardiovascular problems later in life. So we do want people to eat fish. Pregnant women should be eating fish twice a week to get these benefits from the omega-3 fatty acids, but they should eat a variety of fish and avoid the larger fish species. So it is a complex message, but the EPA and FDA have tried to make it as simple as possible by mentioning only two fish servings a week and also to check local fish advisories if people are eating fish that are caught locally. You raised an interesting point. We're not talking about lead accumulation in adults today, but it, since it does accumulate, it could also affect adults. We shouldn't think that an adult is immune to lead accumulation. They're not. No, no, that's correct. OSHA does have standards on lead exposure. The levels at which a worker has to be removed from the workplace are much higher than in children. It's 50 micrograms per deciliter. Some people think that should be lowered. Adults have been shown to have higher rates of high blood pressure and infertility, some renal problems with chronic high lead exposure. Of course, there's the neurologic effects of lead poisoning on very high lead levels that we don't see anymore, like wrist drop and peripheral neuropathies. Interesting. The notion of pesticides. We live in an agricultural world of phenomenal growth. Our productivity is enormous partly because of pesticides, but pesticides are the ultimate two-edged sword. Let's talk a little bit about the dangers of pesticides, 
I know that there's even a discussion that should a young girl be exposed to even pesticides in the house when she's pregnant or about to become pregnant. It's a huge topic. Pesticides, I agree, are a huge topic because there are so many hundreds of different types of pesticides from different chemical classes. So it is difficult to discuss them as one group. There are large epidemiologic studies that are showing health effects to pesticides as a group, and then there are other studies that are studying the individual classes and also showing health effects. Pesticides have been shown to be associated with higher rates of cancers in agricultural communities, higher rates of birth defects in communities. There are neurodevelopmental studies showing decreased neurodevelopment in children exposed to pesticides. Pesticides can cause overt neurologic problems, and of course, with overdose, they can cause death. There are reports every year of children who get into pesticides that have been stored incorrectly and have ingested them. These are not regional problems. If the people in Kansas use a pesticide, but the people in Illinois don't, it doesn't mean that they're immune from it. It can move through the water. It can move through the air. Is there a safe place anymore? Not as long as we have this global market of foods. Of course, eating locally, foods that are grown without pesticides are going to change your pesticide levels in your body, certainly. This whole recent issue of arsenic in apple juice is because a lot of the apple juice is imported and arsenic-containing pesticides are not banned in certain countries like they are in the U.S. We can be exposed to pesticides that are actually banned in the U.S. because we're importing food from other countries where they're not. So can a person actually live in an area and be clean, have an immunity to these issues? It sounds like it's very difficult. I agree it's difficult, but when I talk to groups, I try not to make it sound like we all should panic because you can become overwhelmed with all the chemicals surrounding us. What do I do? Throw up your hands and say, well, i got to die of something. That's not my goal. I have two messages. One is make your own choices for how you want to try to protect yourself from chemicals. You can make some dietary changes. You can make changes in the way you clean your home, the way you get to work, you know, what modes of transportation you choose in order to decrease your individual levels of exposure. But at the same time, we must have policy change at a much higher level in society, at the level of the federal government, state governments, to make changes so that we are all provided with a more safe environment. It's not fair to hold a pregnant woman herself responsible for keeping her fetus safe from all the environmental chemicals. We've got to have change at a, obviously at a higher level to make it all safer for all of us. I completely agree. I, I want to bring up one more topic, and it's a fascinating topic. It's what's known as the endocrine disruptor. The history of it is intriguing because it shows that things can get down to the level of our own internal hormones and how these disruptors mimic the hormones. If you would please explain what an endocrine disruptor is. Endocrine disruptors are a big deal currently, and this issue is not going to go away. It's not just some passing fad. These are chemicals that are found to behave in similar ways as our own circulating hormones, like thyroid hormone, our sex hormones, some obesity-regulating hormones. And once, when we ingest even small amounts into our bodies, subtle hormonal effects can be seen. If we stop being exposed to the irritants, do they go away? There is some research recently showing epigenetic effects. 
so that some methylation can occur at the DNA level, other enzyme changes can occur at the level of DNA, which is then passed on to offspring. One example is the DES debacle, in which the DES daughters, as most people know, were found to have a rare form of vaginal cancers, but now we're finding effects in DES granddaughters. So women whose grandmothers took DES during pregnancy are now showing higher rates of breast cancer, infertility, and other estrogen-linked diseases. The take-home message is that, yes, we need to be careful. We are changing our environment by all the materials that we're using, and we have to find the balance. I know it sounds very trite to put it like that, but if we're going to continue to progress, we need the balance, and we haven't found it yet. Yes, that's, that's correct. I like how you put it. Interesting and complex and a good challenge, to be sure. Susan Buchanan is a physician at the University of Illinois and an assistant professor of occupational and environmental medicine. We thank you so much. This is a very large topic, a very critical topic, and hopefully we can give some people some sources. One of the good sources is through Physicians for Social Responsibility, www.psr.org, and in that is a large section on environmental health, including something called the Environmental Health Reference Card. Very interesting. It's something we should all know about. Dr. Buchanan, Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.